Welcome to the Women in North American Aquaculture podcast, where we talk to influential women about their experiences in research, entrepreneurship, innovation, and mentorship in the aquaculture industry. My name is Miriam Farag, and I'm the editor of Aquaculture North America. We have a second in-person interview in a row. It still feels really special to be able to sit down with people face-to-face and have these interviews. And I'm especially excited to get into this episode right away because I can assure you our guest, Dr. Tracy Fanara, is one of the coolest scientists you'll ever meet. But since this week highlights International Women's Day, I just wanted to take a quick moment to thank all of the women who have been a part of our podcast. And of course, our program sponsor, Merck Animal Health, who made this program happen in the first place. Now, please enjoy the Women in North American Aquaculture podcast with Dr. Tracy Fanara. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Women in North American Aquaculture. I'm here at Aquaculture America 2023 in New Orleans, Louisiana, and I'm sitting down with Dr. Tracy Fanara, environmental engineer, scientist, TV presenter, public speaker, and Mar- uh, Marvel comic agent of Girl. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining me today, Dr. Tracy. Thank you so much for having me. So how are you finding the event so far? Oh, it's amazing. Everybody is so nice here and so collaborative, it's, it's, and I've learned so much already. That's awesome. Me too. Me too. I'm, I'm very happy to be sitting down with you. I usually have these interviews over Zoom, so it's nice to finally get to be with someone face-to-face. <laughs> I can, yeah, I can imagine. Before we start off, why don't you tell me a little bit about your background and expertise? So my background is very diverse. I went to school for environmental engineering. I graduated with my undergrad from University of Florida, and I went into civil design. Uh, water resources, hydrology, and, and hydrologic modeling for a few years before going back to school because I saw how we were mismanaging our land. Basically, we were manipulating the water cycle to a point where we were going to have massive water quality problems, flooding, and in fact, that did happen. But I went back to school to prove that there was a better way. So I focused on sustainable development. Uh, so my, my dissertation was like a watershed scale type retrofit. But I realized through my dissertation and through my research that people didn't know like simple things. You know, I would see my friends throw garbage out their car windows and I asked them where they thought it went and they had no idea when every single drop of rain in the state of Florida goes to a natural water body. And I started realizing how important communication was because I saw when I told them that that's literally going to be the ecosystem for your drinking water, um, they stopped throwing trash out their window, at least around me. But I saw a behavioral change. Uh, so I, I really have had communication as part of my free time ever since. And so I graduated, I was a program manager of environmental health at Mount Marine Laboratory. And that research program was really focused around uh, water quality research and also especially on a harmful species of algae called Florida red tide. The species is Karenia brevis. Um, From there, I went to NOAA and I am now the 
portfolio manager for the coastal and ocean modeling efforts. So basically, we model everything from the bottom of the ocean all the way to storm surge at the ocean service. And it's it's really, really intense, but it's really, really important. And through all of my experience before now, I realize how important Earth systems are to answer local problems. I was going to ask you what brought you to aquaculture because it's a really interesting story. You seem to have lived so many lives and uh, in many different careers before you found aquaculture, right? Yeah, I mean, at Moat, I worked at an aquarium and I always loved fish. I always loved the water. Um, but it really wasn't until I saw, you know, I had gone through um, the Florida 18, a Florida 2018 water crisis as an expert and it was really hard. You know, yeah, I saw you got a lot of media recognition for that. Tell us more. Yeah, well, it was, um, we have a bloom of Florida red tide. So let me explain what it is first. Uh, we have thousands of species of phytoplankton. They're the base of the ecosystem, super important. Um, but few of those species are toxic, meaning they release a toxin that can harm aquatic life. But what makes Florida red tide unique is that the, the toxin release can actually attach on a sea salt particles in the air, move on shore with winds, and cause respiratory irritation or coughing, sneezing in people that are healthy. But for those with asthma or COPD or, or any other kind of respiratory illness, this can be really serious. And we do have a bloom every year, but every 10 years or, or so, we have big blooms, really intense blooms, and these are economically devastating, ecologically devastating. We have thousands of tons of dead wildlife washing ashore, um, public health is impacted, and and so is quality of life and tourism, like everything. Uh, but in 2018, an existing bloom that started in 2017 after Hurricane Irma uh, exacerbated and we had a Florida red tide bloom along with a toxic freshwater algae species that, that that water was released into our coastal waters. So Florida declared a state of emergency mm-hmm. and we didn't have all the answers which which really opened the door to misinformation and disinformation and just things running wild through private Facebook pages and it was uncontrollable really but all I can do was was do as many talks as possible, was, you know, put the right information, the correct information of what we knew out there. Mm-hmm. So after that whole experience and, and the, what worked best uh, in that situation was working with the public, starting yeah. community science programs and getting them hands-on so that they learn. And the biggest thing I found through everything is that our lack of, of scientific literacy of the general mm-hmm. public is causing these problems. When you don't know how the world works, basic like water cycle or nutrient limitations, or I mean, I would say that that's a little bit more advanced than basic knowledge, but still, like it was really tough for the general public to understand complicated science when they didn't have a base understanding, which is why it was so much easier to work with kids during that time. Yeah, I saw a video of you rapping. It was Society of Women Engineers uh, event with middle school kids in California. Oh. It was, it, that, that moment was my favorite public speaking moment of all time. I didn't plan to rap. I just told them that. So that it was unplanned? It was completely unplanned. And they started chanting. And I was like, all right, you guys come up to the stage then. And, and it, it <laughs> happened. And then Weather Channel saw it. And so now I rapped on national TV. Um, How cool is it funny. being a scientist and a rapper at the same time? 
<laughs> yeah, it's pretty, <laughs> pretty awesome. You know, my rap career, really have to pay more attention to it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but, th- but the point of me telling you all of that was because I had real, like, empathy for scientists undergoing, you know, going through chaos or crisis. Mm-hmm. And when I saw people picketing outside of Mount Marine Laboratory, and this time it was for aquaculture, I started really looking into it. I have a friend that is an environmentalist activist, and he really focuses on sustainable seafood. And so I've heard his side, but now I heard the side of the scientists and the side of the, the fisheries and the commercial fishermen and recreational fishermen through my experience of Florida Red Tide. So I got all of these sides of a story. And then uh, I had an intern that I was working with and he reached out to NASA and he was like, I heard you guys are doing aquaponics in space. And wow. so NASA reached out to me and they were like, okay, let's, let's get this going. Wow. So yeah, so we started a, a project to, to put aquaponics in space. And the reason why it was so awesome to me is because I was always one of those people that were like, why, why space when earth? Like I was all about earth. Like, why are we spending so much money on space research? And, and through this whole process, I found out why. Because in space, you, with the limitations of space, you can reach true sustainable designs and mm-hmm. technology. And so, so building aquaponics in space was like the ultimate understanding of nutrient cycling, of biology, bacteria. You know, uh, we had an algae bioreactor. You know, you really have to know everything perfectly and the hydrology so that you're not wasting any water at any point you're cleaning everything <laughs> to a point where it's good for the fish. And well, we had three different species. And also that it's good for drinking at the end of it. Mm-hmm. You have to use every single drop of water. And, and another thing I love about that is that people here on earth, they're so disconnected from where their water comes from, where their wastewater goes. And they have, most have no idea that they're drinking the same water that they're flushing down their toilet just goes through yeah it just goes through a process but in space it's like it's right in your face and you know everybody wants to be an astronaut (laughs) so but but that's how I started uh learning more about aquaculture wow it's such an interesting story and like looking at all the different jobs you've had do you see a recurring theme of what attracted you to all of these pursuits it's a really good question um so when I was in undergrad, I was, my research was in wastewater uh, technology, yeah. and, I, and I really wanted to genetically engineer microbes to clean up wastewater. Mm-hmm. That's what I wanted to do. And upon graduation, I just fell into, like I applied to 100 places, and I just took the first job I got, which was in civil design. And it was totally out of my comfort zone, and I realized how important stormwater was. Mm-hmm. But the thing that, that has been the common theme is water and cleaning water and, and making it so, you know, biology can thrive in that water. Because biology is really dependent on physics and chemistry, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we have to understand the physics and the chemistry if we're going to understand the biology, which is super complicated, like really understanding a species because they're all different. Like even with the unicellular organisms, like Florida red tide, we're, we see you know, how resilient cells are 
the, it mm-hmm. changes from cell to cell. We can't we can't make blanket statements. Like it's really it's interesting. And then they work differently in a lab than they do in the natural environment. The point is, biology is hard, but physics and chemistry are the things that you can really monitor. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that's kind of been been my consistent thing. And then going to aquaponics, it like brought me back to the wastewater treatment and the microbes. I was gonna say sustainability at first, but yeah. I, I want to say biology. That was your recurring theme through all of this. Yeah, I mean, I guess it is, but I, but only indirectly. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Like I, I do understand. it all for the biology, but I would never call myself a biologist. Okay, that's yeah. interesting. Uh huh. Like even now to understand uh, algae blooms or water quality or um, pollutant transport so like for oil spills or whatever that is like the work that I do with Noah is really focused on the water currents and where the water is going and where the height of the water is and if there's going to be inundation where land pollutants are going to come to shore it's interesting yeah it's all for biology but it's but it's always been water too yeah for sure tell me more about your role with Noah what do you do on an everyday basis <laughs> uh honestly I Every day is different. Um, our world is changing so quickly. And during Red Tide, you know, we had 70 years of research where local scientists were taking local samples and they didn't have the answers, but of course not, because that microscopic species that's endemic to the Gulf of Mexico was influenced by Earth systems, by hurricanes, by currents, by temperatures, you know, El, El Nino and La Nina. Uh, surface water runoff like there were so many uh, sands from the Saharan coming into the Gulf of Mexico which you know also feed the Amazon and are you know responsible for the great biodiversity we have there also feed a precursor species to red tide so it's really understanding all of those systems all of those things working together so that we can answer questions locally Um, and so my job at NOAA is to work really hard to understand exactly where we need data to work with uh, other scientists at NOAA, other agencies, and the academic community to develop models so that we can understand at a very fine resolution these changes that are happening um, and predict and forecast them. Mm-hmm. And it's like we have too much to do in too little time because the world is changing so fast. So we need as many people helping on our mission as possible. So community modeling is a big focus. So getting everyone from around the world who has modeling expertise is working on a model to allow them to be able to contribute to this unified earth systems modeling it's called um, epic and ufs so the model itself is called the unified forecast system Mm -hmm. and so that's a big a big job of mine is working within the offices of NOAA and the external community to get the data that we need to answer the big questions and I know you've touched on this earlier, but like now a common challenge for the aquaculture industry is having to dispel environmental groups that are against uh, fish farming in general. From your experience with NOAA, have you found an effective way out of creating that public education to what your company does? That's a really good question. And, you know, we have an entire education like arm at NOAA that does a lot of that. Uh, and, and I feel for the fisheries group because if it's not one thing, it's another that, that activists are, you know, fighting over and, 
and a lot of times the, the fingers are pointed at NOAA fisheries. But my experience with activists uh, was more highlighted when I was at Memorial Laboratory with Florida Red Tide. And what, what I learned is that people love being a part of something. They love being passionate about something. And, and it can be exhilarating and it can be effective, but it can also be toxic and detrimental. Yeah. Um, community science groups throughout history have promoted major change, like the Gowanus Canal in, in Brooklyn. I mean, only extremophiles lived there. They were dumping their wastewater there for decades, and then all the toxins, everything. There were, it was just a huge dump. And activists for decades worked together to, they even hired their own scientists to take samples and try to clean up the Gowanus Canal. And now there's like porpoises swimming through it. BP oil spill, community scientists that were monitoring the oil spill noticed another oil spill. It was the Taylor oil spill that people didn't realize was going on for 16 years. Uh, In Florida, after Florida Red Tide, Mm -hmm. the activists, because of that freshwater uh, toxic species, the activists worked to get funding to restore the Everglades and to try to redirect water south like the way it was going because the Everglades are starved of water so activists have been effective but I've also seen where they can be destructive and I think it's really important no matter who you are no matter what you're talking about what you're passionate about to be open to change and open to new information and really think about your end game because I think if activists really focused on their end game making the ecology better they would be and, and this goes for the other side, too. You know, don't focus on winning. Focus on making the world a better place. And if these groups can work with the other groups somehow and focus on reaching common ground rather than winning, I think we'd all be much better off. That's uh, interesting that you say that because it is a common challenge nowadays, right? And I'm, I think the best thing you said now is rather than focusing on winning, focus on making the world a better place right that's that should be the goal yes so if you're fighting for better water quality and whatever you're pointing the finger at which it's never one thing okay let's let's be honest like whenever we have a big ecological problem it's never it's never usually one thing it's many things that culminate and eventually there's a threshold or a breaking point a tipping point and that's when we see the effects and at that point a lot of times it's too late which is why it's important to get there you know, earlier. But if they really focused on that water quality and working with whoever they're pointing the finger at, at advancing their technology and being more sustainable, and then if they achieve that, they have to see that as a win. Not shutting them down. Shutting them down isn't the way you win. The way you win is providing food for the world in a more sustainable way. And, and that's the thing. We have more people on Earth than fish in the ocean can provide. Mm-hmm. And aquaculture is a necessity. So it's just doing it sustainably. And the activists should see that. Yeah, we're doing our best to spread the word as much as we can. And that's always the goal, like you said. Shifting the conversation a little bit here. Well, being a scientist is cool, of course. But being a scientist featured in a Marvel comic book is even cooler. <laughs> <laughs> well, Unstoppable, Unstoppable Wasp did such a good job of highlighting real scientists. It was pretty awesome. 
Yeah, so for our listeners who don't know, The Unstoppable Wasp tells the story of Hank Pym's daughter, Nadia. As a super genius and scientist, the daughter of the original Ant-Man has assembled a team of girl geniuses to help her change the world with science. The lab featured in the comic book is called Girl, like I mentioned in the beginning of the episode. Geniuses in research labs. Exactly, that's what it stands for. Uh, And unlike other comics, that have a regular column featuring uh, readers' letters at the end. Uh, the Unstoppable Wasp has a question and answer section that contains interviews with female scientists. And this is where Dr. Tracy makes her appearance. Yeah, which is pretty cool. <laughs> How it did was, that happen, by the way? I, I was on a show called Mythbusters. Yes, also um, that. <laughs> yeah, and that's how, that's how the comic found my friend and I. I was featured with my friend that was also on... Uh, on Mythbusters so that was pretty cool yeah it was pretty cool like I, I noticed that a big part of what you want to do is communicating science to the public right that's what you were talking about in the beginning also the literacy about science is low yes. <laughs> and also of course not to mention inspector planet oh yeah that too for those who are not familiar with inspector planet can you give us a little introduction about yes your company yes and its mission definitely but because i mentioned seekers of science i, I yeah. should probably say something about that so from unstoppable wasp uh we started our own comic series called seekers of science and Ooh. it's available on amazon and all proceeds go to uh, giving copies to underserved communities for free so we that don't so it's cool. not something we make money on we actually lose money on it but but what like what's the age range for this middle school middle school yeah that is very cool and who works with you on it like uh so todd black is a comic writer and i work with my friend Tamara robertson and uh and we have an animator as well all right that is very cool i'm gonna check it out yeah right after this yeah <laughs> um but inspector planet my 11 year old cousin was obsessed with kim kardashian and uh and i was just like there's got to be better role models on tv <laughs> and there weren't um, at that time, and so in 2013, I, I developed Inspector Planet. It's a mission to, uh, to combine sustainability with innovation, hence uh, you know, Inspector Gadget and Captain Planet together. And uh, so I started making videos, and the first one I made was about my research. And I really sucked at communication in the beginning. I think that it's important I, I, to mention. I can't believe this. Yeah, no. it was really bad. It's very hard to believe. It, when I look back, uh, it's like so cringy to look back at the beginning. You know, you're like, oh my gosh. But thank gosh, I did it every single day, multiple times a day. Like back when Snapchat was cool. Um, I used to, you know, like filming yourself talking about science and doing it over and over all day long. And the thing is, when I was at Mode, I had 13 interns working on different projects. So I had something to talk about constantly, constantly and trying to encourage my interns to also communicate and also to build because of Mythbusters. It's just really, when you build something, it opens the world to you. You realize you're not limited to what exists right now. But I think that's really the mission of Inspector Planet. And now I think uh, we start beach cleanups uh, all over the country. And we are starting, well, hopefully this hasn't happened yet, but I want to start a basically a survival workshop Mm-hmm. so that um, people that are struck with natural disasters understand how to work and live with their environment. But even though it sounds real badass to be a survivalist, the real truth of it is that it's connecting you with nature. 
It's making you realize the world around you and the connection that you have to trees and water and dirt and fungi. Mm -hmm. What inspired this? When I realized that people didn't know where the water came from or where it went, um, and they can't name two trees in their backyard. And, and then I started realizing that there were things that I didn't know about my environment. So I started working with survivalists and started camping a lot more and researching the things around me. I realized how much more I appreciated. And I was one that already appreciated the environment, but it just brought it to a new level. Um, so I want to share that with other people. And also, uh, after Hurricane Ian, that was really what initiated this this push forward. Um, people were tweeting me, like, Inspector Planet, why aren't you doing anything? And there was nothing I can do at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so along with the survivalist training that would happen prior, I'm working with the University of Florida to get a rapid response mission going for after these events so that we can get the samples needed to understand what the water quality is like, what kind of threat there is to cleanup crews uh, right after. Because this year, um, all that fresh water coming in was a perfect habitat for a species called Vibrio vulnificus. It's flesh-eating bacteria. It exists along the coast everywhere, but um, in these certain environmental conditions, it can really thrive. And nine people died. One of them was a volunteer from Illinois that came down to uh, help with the cleanup. He was cleaning up debris from the water, scraped himself, and Gabriel entered. And, and knowing that we couldn't get we couldn't get down there, like it was really tough to get the permissions to get down there, and it was unnecessary. So we want to have that all set up in advance so that we can get down there. I have a big Jeep that I can run over a lot of debris with um, and outfitting that with a mobile lab and hopefully that will be helpful. That sounds very exciting. I would love to follow through and see how that comes, like the project. Yeah, me too. So getting to know you a little bit more, did you have any mentors as you started out in your career and do you still have any mentors now? So it's funny, that is a question that I haven't really been able to answer very well up to this point. Um, I have people that have made it possible for me to be where I am. Uh, Dr. Paul Chaddick at the University of Florida, um, I was actually rejected by UF and I went down and knocked on every door and it was because I hadn't taken physics yet and I was a transfer student. I I knocked on every door until someone was there, and it happened to be Dr. Chaddick um, of environmental engineering. I had never even heard of the field before. And because my roots started in Buffalo, New York, the home of one of the most polluted areas in America, everything kind of came full circle because environmental engineers make sure you have clean water and make sure when you flush your toilet it goes to the right place and put your garbage out, you know, doing all the landfill design, air quality, and renewable energy, everything. Like, environmental engineering was everything. Um, so I would say he's one uh, because he got me into the school, and mm-hmm. it totally changed my life. The next one is uh, Dr. David Mazik. He got me into grad school, and also he was on my committee. And sometimes you don't have the best experiences with professors you've probably heard that before like i loved my professor but i saw him turn on a few people before me and five people quit but i thought that i was like an exception or there was something wrong with them and then i started to see it so i turned that research into a master's and then created my own phd and got outside funding but unfortunately my new professor who is wonderful he's a genius but he struggled with um, addiction and he was let go from the university. So I was pretty much on my own 
but I'm really grateful for Dr. Wise and Dr. Annabel and Dr. Newman from University of Florida that that did what they they could do for me to graduate. But it was cool because I did it all myself, and I don't think that many PhDs can can say that they really did it all themselves. So I, I would have liked to have a mentor because I would probably have more publications now. And now I have a boss that's like a very mentor-like person, mm-hmm. um, Derek Snowden, and he's he's just a good person. He's a he's detail-oriented, and I'm not. I'm very big picture, like goal-oriented. So I probably drive him crazy, and he drives me crazy <laughs> sometimes. But he really is a good mentor. I'm glad we spoke about this because when I have these interviews, I always ask these women about mentorship, and they all wish they had better mentors back in the day when they started their career. It would have yeah. helped a lot. Oh, yeah. Especially being in a field that is mostly male-dominated. Right. Uh, you, you face a lot of challenges. Um, right, and that's why it's so important. You know, if you notice, the three people that I mentioned were male. And, yeah. and I think it's really important for us as females to reach back and be those mentors that we never had and to stick with that. And that's why I do these kids' camps and why I took on so many interns because it's so important that, that students feel like they have someone rooting for them. Mm-hmm and to ask questions too, and to give a little bit of insight from their experience. So I encourage every female to mentor as much as possible because that's really how you change the world. Again, it's, it's not about winning yourself, it's about the end goal. And if you're in science, to make the world a better place, which most of our, us are, mm-hmm. that's what you do. You bring people up and you hope that they jump over you. What is the best advice you've ever received? Get comfortable with the uncomfortable. Do something that you're not comfortable doing every single day. And I mean, and, and for me, like that has avoided monotony, which, which makes you, you know, get bored in your job or everyday life. But I'm always doing something that I've never done before because that's the only way you grow really, you know, like you're, if you're doing the same thing that you've always done, you're going to stay in the same place. Maybe people promote you because you've been there for so long and you're really good at what you do, but, but you're never going to go to real new heights, new places, new directions and figure out where you need to be or where you can be most effective unless you really step outside that comfort zone. What advice would you give to your younger self? Oh gosh, I don't even know where to start. That's a really, that's a, that's a huge question. (laughs) Um, I think that I would tell myself to worry less about, I was real boy crazy. Like, and in my 20s, I felt like there was always a timeline. You know, actually, that's really what it, what it boils down to is the fact that I gave in to society's timeline so much. Like, you'd think that you have to be married by 25 and have kids by 28. Like, that was my timeline. And, like, you feel like you, you're stuck and, and you're too old to do certain things. I remember I wanted to be Britney Spears' backup dancer. Um, but wow. I, I, yeah, but going through engineering school, you know, like I was taking like 20 credits a semester or more because I did a five year program in three years. It was a lot. And so I couldn't think about hobbies like that. But when I graduated, I was like, oh, man, I'm too old now. I was 20. I was 22. Like I was not too old. And that's the thing. Like we keep on putting these limitations on ourselves. And I think that that's that's what I would make myself see. 
is that there are no limitations and to really find your passion because I wish that I found what I was passionate about 10 years before I did but I'm glad that when I found it I really doubled down and I went for it but there's a lot of things I would tell myself in the 20 in my 20s or and in my teens like the things that matter and the things that don't you know that you now see like you don't realize that something that's upsetting you like a fight with friends or a breakup or something like that that you're not going to even think about it maybe not even remember it in five years you know and in in those moments you just think that that's your whole world so it's that kind of stuff do you still want to be a britney spears backup dancer well yeah i th I'm, i'm hoping for a britney comeback you know <laughs> i really am and i yeah. will totally be her backup dancer <laughs> 100 yeah i mean i i think i would really do that Uh, but right now I'm really focused on storm chasing. Uh, I want to get back to, that's what I did for my uh, graduate school, uh, for my master's, and I really want to get back to storm chasing. So that's, that's my thing this year. That's your thing this um, year? Yeah, and learning Spanish and learning the drums or DJing. I haven't chosen between. I know I have to pick one, learning the drums or learning how to DJ. Those are I don't my... know, I, I see you more in the DJ thing. You do? Yeah, okay, that I helps. Do. That helps, yeah. that's, I think There that... Yeah, <laughs> that all I need is a computer then, and I don't need to buy a big drum set and bother There everybody. There you go. That's perfect. Practical thinking. Yeah. All right. I'm gonna be a DJ. <laughs> all right. And last but not least, what's your favorite fish pun or joke? Um, You're a scientist, so it can be about science if you want to. No, no, no. I get fish. Uh, why is it so easy to weigh fish? I don't know why. Because they have their own scales. <laughs> 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 that was quick yeah that was quick yeah <laughs> right to the point all right thank you so much dr tracy for uh, joining me today this has been so fun uh i'm glad i got to meet you and sit down with you and talk about all these things and uh, you're you're very inspiring for all the females out there who would like to advance careers in science and aquaculture and so are you oh thank you very much thank you uh that's very nice of you i hope to see you again soon and enjoy the rest of your event yeah you too thank you another episode in the books as always our show notes with links photos and more extras can be found on our website aquaculturenorthamerica.com women if you want to support this podcast please share this with everyone in your network all the social media channels you want. And please join us in thanking our program sponsor, Merck Animal Health. Together, we can ensure welfare and sustainability for aquatic species. Once again, happy International Women's Day, and thanks for listening. Hope to see you soon.